1903, the English physicist John Ambrose Fleming, who among other things invented the vacuum tube, presided over an event at the Royal Institution's Lecture Theatre in London. The event was an unveiling of sorts. He was demonstrating to those in attendance a collection of some of the era's most important thinkers and connected social entities, a radio transmitter that he had designed at the behest of the Italian inventor Guglielmo Marconi, who is credited with, among other inventions, the development of the radio. Marconi was keen to make wireless communication across the Atlantic a reality, something that, up until that point, was only attainable via expensive and flawed undersea telegraph cables, and he aimed to do this wirelessly via radio transmission. Fleming was an expert in relevant engineering techniques and thus was hired to build the world's first large radio transmitter a spark gap model powered by a combustion engine, which successfully transmitted the first transatlantic radio message in December of 1901. The transmitter worked similarly, in some ways, to the more familiar at the time telegraph. Operators would translate their message into the dots and dashes of Morse code, and those would be sent via pulse, in the case of the telegraph, across long cables, and in the case of the radio, using radio waves. This demonstration was meant to show the English scientific elite this new wonder, wireless telegraphy, essentially, which Marconi and Fleming both claimed could be used to send private messages across vast distances. In an interview for a London newspaper that same year, Marconi is quoted as having said, quote, I can tune my instruments so that no other instrument that is not similarly tuned can tap my messages, end quote. Which is technically true, in that no other non-similarly tuned instrument would be able to pick up such a signal. What many of us know today, of course, is that tapping into a radio signal is as simple as changing one's frequency. That's what we do when we change the station on a piece of radio hardware. Each station has the right to transmit at a different radio frequency, and changing the channel is really just moving up and down the radio spectrum. Marconi, and apparently Fleming, didn't seem to realize this, though, or at the very least thought that they could overcome the issue before anyone else realized that radio transmission was actually not ideal for private messages, and actually way, way better for mass broadcasts. Whatever the case, this knowledge was about to become embarrassingly widespread before they could change their story. A handful of minutes before the transmission was set to begin, the audience in attendance arrayed around the device, the transmitter began to register the click and clack, of a Morse-coded message arriving. The message, at first, simply repeating over and over the word rats, followed by a, for the time, quite brutal limerick, which was clearly referring to Marconi. Quote, There was a young fellow of Italy who diddled the public quite prettily, end quote, followed by other also quite scathing and inappropriate put-downs. 
All of this happened in the few minutes leading up to the official transmission, which then began as scheduled following these imposter messages. After the event, Marconi refused to speak about the issue, while Fleming declared via a letter to the Times, a newspaper in London, that what had happened was, quote, scientific hooliganism, end quote, and, quote, an outrage against the traditions of the royal institution, end quote. Another letter was published by the Times four days later, this one penned by a man named Neville Maskelin, a British music hall magician who claimed he was responsible for the false message intrusion. Maskelin came from a family of inventors. His father invented the pay-to-access locks for public toilets, and Maskelin himself used wireless transmission techniques that he developed in some of his magic tricks. Despite coming up with many innovations, using similar radio transmitters as those utilized by Fleming and Marconi, however, Maskelin was frustrated with Marconi's tendency to scoop up all possible patents related to those and adjacent technologies, which severely limited anyone else's ability to work within such spaces or to innovate within them unless they happened to be or happened to work for Marconi. This particular stunt was not a pure revenge move, though. The success of a burgeoning radio transmission industry would be potentially devastating for the then-dominant telegraph industry, and one of the titans of telegraphy, the Eastern Telegraph Company, which served as the main communications entity for the British Empire at the time, hired Maskelin to spy on Marconi after the latter's aforementioned successful transatlantic transmission in 1901. Maskelin built his own large radio mast, which allowed him to pick up on the ostensibly private signals sent on specific granular radio frequencies both across the Atlantic and to individual ships, which was an early use case for this technology before it went mainstream, sent by Marconi. And thus Maskelin got quite a bit of practice snooping on Marconi's transmissions, navigating the radio spectrum, and figuring out how to transmit his own messages to distant devices. Maskelin performed this stunt then, both at the behest of the telegraph industry, but also, he claimed in his letter to the Times, to demonstrate a gaping security hole in this wireless technology that was being presented as if it was safe and foolproof to a public that had no reason to know any better. What I'd like to talk about today is our communication channels, hacking those communication channels, and the context surrounding a recent, very well-publicized hack of a popular and influential social network. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. For a long while, the term hacking primarily applied to clever hacked-together solutions that maybe weren't pretty, but which made things work. Hacking together a fix for a faulty tractor. Hacking your electrical wiring to fix a recurring short circuit. That sort of thing. The term etymologically migrated from physical, often engineering-based use cases to the world of computing in the 1950s at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. 
In several articles and papers written about this word's evolution, April of 1955 is presented as a pivotal month, as the minutes of a meeting of the Tech Model Railroad Club at MIT states, quote, Mr. Eccles requests that anyone working or hacking on the electrical system turn the power off to avoid fuse blowing, end quote. It's a fair bet that the term was used for similar purposes for quite a while leading up to this point, but there aren't many recorded instances of this or similar words before that particular railroad club meeting, and their strangely significant decision to record and archive the minutes of it, much to the delight of modern lexicographers. By the mid-1970s, this term had been thoroughly adopted by computer engineers and enthusiasts, with a terminology dictionary for programmers entitled The Jargon File, listing eight definitions for the word, the first of which was, quote, a person who enjoys exploring the details of programmable systems and how to stretch their capabilities, as opposed to most users who prefer to learn only the minimum necessary. RFC 1392, the Internet User's Glossary, usefully amplifies this as a person who delights in having an intimate understanding of the internal workings of a system, computers, and computer networks in particular, end quote. Followed by a slew of generally favorable definitions, like, quote, a person who is good at programming quickly, end quote, all the way to definition number eight which is said to be deprecated, and which is defined as, quote, a malicious meddler who tries to discover sensitive information by poking around, hence password hacker, network hacker. The correct term for this sense is cracker, end quote. Cracker, in this context, being defined as someone who cracks security protocols, much like an old-school thief would be called a safecracker, though it's also posited that it perhaps references the Middle English meaning of the term, which is basically an obnoxious person. In these old 70s and 80s guides to hacking culture, there's a lot of digital ink spilled about the hacking ethic, most of the tenets of which revolve around believing that information sharing is generally good, that open source code is generally good, and that it's okay to break into systems for the purpose of understanding them, and for fun and exploration, but not for the purposes of theft, vandalism, or the invasion of privacy. Now, there are portions of the online community that still adhere to parts or all of that ethic, and there are some really solid cybersecurity analysts and writers in particular who carry that torch in their work today. Many hackers that make the news in modern times, though, even if they still believe or claim to believe that first part, have set aside the latter portion of that ethic. Information should be free, open source is good. That is still there in a lot of cases. But there seems to be a lot less support these days for the idea that those who are able to hack into systems should not take criminal advantage of the power they wield. And this is no doubt the case for a variety of reasons, though, to be fair, we generally only hear about the hackers who do really illegal stuff, so there might be some survivorship bias at play, which would mean that folks doing mostly non-illegal and harmless things don't emerge in the public consciousness very often, and thus are highly underrepresented in the portrayal of modern hacker culture to the mainstream. This space, whichever aspect of the hacker culture we might be talking about, has changed shape 
as our communication tools have changed shape. Back in the day, when radio signals were in vogue, we had magicians using homemade radio towers to intercept private messages, and in some cases, to send their own to unwitting, unwelcoming recipients. As landline telephones became all the rage, we began to see variations on the concept of freaking, P-H-R-E-A-K-I-N-G, which generally meant messing with automated phone systems, beginning with MIT's acquisition of a computer called the Programmed Data Processor 1, or PDP-1, which is famous for being the first ever computer to host a video game, a game called Space War, with an exclamation point but which also became well-known for hosting the first-ever text editor, word processor, interactive debugger, the first real chess program, and some of the first-ever computer-generated music. It was also popular with the burgeoning hacker culture, for many of the same reasons it was popular with folks making other sorts of software. It was flexible and capable in a way that earlier computers were not. The first recorded instance of a freaking-style hack was conducted with the PDP-1. It was used by students at MIT to tie up the phone line between MIT and Harvard, and it allowed students to make long-distance calls for free by charging the calls to a nearby radar installation. A different method to achieve essentially the same outcome was originally developed by a seven-year-old boy with perfect pitch who discovered he could whistle the fourth E above middle C with a frequency of 2600 hertz to interfere with AT&T's automated phone systems, which would then allow him to use that system free of charge. That was back in 1957, and the technique was used in hacked-together so-called blue-box devices throughout the 60s, before being packaged and sold as a more formal product by a couple of computer enthusiasts named Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, two names that you might know today because they eventually went on to found Apple Computers. The boy who initially discovered this trick, who went by the name Joy Bubbles, but who was born Joseph Ingressia, went on to become a fairly well-known phone hacker, or freaker, before being taken down by the FBI and other law enforcement, which ended his freaking career. Eventually, computers were networked together, and the users of those computers figured out ways to explore the other devices to which their computers were now connected remotely. In many cases, this was possible because of flaws in the software that were being utilized, and the exploration was innocent. Just tinkering around, seeing what other computers looked like, how other users were structuring their files, and maybe, at times, leaving a cheeky little note for that other user to find as a bit of fun. But often this sort of hacking was just exploration for the sake of exploration and learning. In the late 70s and early 80s, though, a slew of networking-related break-ins of corporations and government entities led to several public arrests of hackers, And later in the 80s and into the 1990s, hacking groups and events began to form, including the fairly well-known Chaos Computer Club, the 414s, and the Legion of Doom, the latter of which had so much interpersonal drama between its members that a lot of their antics became known to the public as they began to sell each other out to the cops and to the press. This period also saw the advent of more modern computer viruses, worms, and trojans, all types of software that could spread throughout networks, be they intranets, 
ARPANET, or eventually the internet that we have today. Major bits of infrastructure went online around this time, including banks, though it was primarily their back-end activities that were connected to these networks at this point in history, nothing customer-facing. Nonetheless, hackers from Russia stole $10 million from Citibank. An application called AOHEL allowed non-hackers to do hacker-like things on the America Online web service, and the U.S. Defense Department computers were successfully hacked over 160,000 times in 1995 alone. Some of these increasingly common hacks involved clever software that could crack passwords or fake credentials. Others utilized basic network penetration techniques, which essentially means hackers are able to access devices and files on a network by using what's already there making use of unintentional flaws in the system or access points that they shouldn't have access to or shouldn't be able to use in the way in which they figure out how to use them. In other cases, a collection of techniques called social engineering were used, sometimes in tandem with other techniques, but at times in isolation, in which case all that was really required to conduct these hacks was talking to people, lying convincingly, and doing some research and exploration of the systems in question, so that they knew which levers to pull and how to take advantage of a system's existing rules and infrastructure to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. That in mind, the article I'd like to unspool today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, From Minecraft Tricks to Twitter Hack, A Florida Teen's Troubled Online Path. On July 15th, 2020, a slew of fairly unique one- and two-character Twitter usernames, a type of username that is cherished and valued by, and often hacked, bought, and sold by, folks in various online communities, began to post scam tweets. Shortly thereafter, the Twitter accounts of cryptocurrency platforms like Coinbase and Coindesk did the same. The same scam messages were then posted by the Twitter accounts of well-known entrepreneurs, celebrities, brands, and politicians. Elon Musk, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Bill Gates, Kim Kardashian, Kanye West, alongside Apple, Uber, and other major companies, all posted essentially the same scam message, asking their followers to send them Bitcoin and promising to send back double the sent amount as a thank you to those fans. Included in these tweets was a string of letters and numbers that serve as a Bitcoin wallet address, where potential victims could send the requested Bitcoins. Twitter administrators were able to pull most of these tweets within minutes of them being posted, but some were then reposted by the same accounts, which led to Twitter restricting activity by verified accounts, accounts with little blue check marks that are meant to indicate that an account is trustworthy and verified to be who they say they are, which kept most of these verified accounts from posting new content for several hours, at which point their posting rights were then re-established, and Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, announced that they believed they had returned all the hijacked accounts to their rightful owners and were looking into what had happened. In the aftermath, It was announced that 130 profiles had been hijacked. 45 of those were used to post the scammy messages, 36 had their direct messages accessed, and 8 had their account data downloaded. 
It's estimated that the Bitcoin accounts used in the scam messages only brought in somewhere around 100000 maybe as high as $200,000, though it's tough to tell, as the folks behind these types of schemes often put some money in their accounts themselves, a bit like seeding a tip jar, so that the people who are thinking about sending you money for your scam don't see an empty account with no transactions, which could raise red flags. The perpetrators used several Bitcoin wallets to accept money, then rerouted that money through different accounts in an attempt to avoid detection. Though Coinbase, a platform through which people can buy, sell, and send cryptocurrency, reported that they blocked the accounts being used on their platform after it was clear what was happening, which kept around 1,000 transactions, totaling over $280,000, from being completed. Within a few days, it was confirmed by Vice, TechCrunch, and the New York Times that the people behind the hack and scam were part of an online community that trades in what they call OG accounts, often one, two, and three character usernames on accounts like Twitter, but also other highly desirable, usually one-word names like at error and at blast or at death. It's a niche interest, but some of these usernames can fetch thousands of dollars for hackers who are able to steal them away from their original owners before reselling them through these types of communities. According to the aforementioned reporting, these hackers took advantage of the fact that Twitter has a technical dashboard that their employees use to manage and block and ban and verify and otherwise take care of their work on the platform and most Twitter employees at the moment are working remotely due to COVID-19, so some of their security measures around this platform are a little less stringent than they would typically be. On top of that, some security measures just weren't being handled terribly securely to begin with, and login credentials for that backend security platform that allowed employees to have godlike powers on Twitter were posted in the employee Slack channel. These hackers were able to get credentials from low-level Twitter employees after convincing them that they were their co-workers, which allowed them to then pretend to be those employees that they tricked, using their login info to get into the company Slack channel, and they worked their way up the chain until they had the info they needed to get into, use, and block some of the security measures surrounding that back-end system, which is what eventually allowed them to post from these big-name Twitter accounts and to access private data contained within those accounts. Based on research and reporting done by security researcher Brian Krebs, who writes the Krebs on Security blog, alongside reporting by TechCrunch and Reuters, it would appear that this hack began as an effort to acquire and sell OG Twitter account usernames, and then evolved into a smash-and-grab effort to make a quick buck on a Bitcoin scam before they were kicked out of the system, which they knew was inevitable after they started using it in more obvious ways, like stealing these OG account usernames. A few weeks after the hack, on July 31st, 2020, the U.S. Department of Justice announced that they had arrested three hackers who allegedly conducted this hack. A 19-year-old from the UK and a 22-year-old from Orlando, Florida, were charged as accomplices, while a 17-year-old from Tampa, Florida, was charged as the mastermind of the plan, and he now faces 30 felony charges, including fraud. He's also being tried as an adult, despite not yet being 18, 
because of the severity of the charges, the risk he poses to society, and because of his past criminal actions. The trio were caught relatively quickly, it would seem, in part because they had left evidence of who they were all over the internet, including the OG username Hangouts, where the concept of the scam originated. But they also apparently had trouble getting the money once it was scammed out of their victims. It's trickier to move Bitcoin than you might think. And the 17-year-old mastermind, a young man named Graham Clark, was already being watched by the FBI for earlier Bitcoin scams, including an $850,000-ish theft of Bitcoins a year previous, though he was not charged for that theft because he was a minor. The aforementioned New York Times article is about Clark's genesis toward this scam and his capture, which is interesting for many reasons, including that he apparently got his start scamming other players on Minecraft, offering to sell them in-game items, taking the money, and then not delivering those items. He eventually used the same model with desirable OG usernames, selling the names, pocketing the money, and then walking away without delivering the product. Among the many tools utilized by such groups to illegally acquire OG usernames is what's called SIM swapping, which involves transferring a mobile phone number, and thus mobile phone account, from one SIM card to another, This is sometimes done via social engineering, convincing someone at a mobile phone store that they are the real owners of a particular phone number and are trying to get access to their own account after losing their phone or something along those lines. And in some cases, it's done with the willing, often paid-off participation of an employee who works at such a store. The end result is that the phone number is copied to a new SIM in their possession, and that allows them to reset the passwords of many or most of the online accounts of their target. This proved to be an especially popular approach for crypto thieves, and in this case, the stolen $850,000-ish in Bitcoin crime from the previous year was the consequence of sim-swapping a tech investor's phone number, then draining that investor's cryptocurrency wallet into his once he had access to his victim's accounts. Interestingly, Clark's old habit of selling digital goods and then not fulfilling his side of the bargain seemingly played a role in exposing him in this case. He stole and sold several OG Twitter accounts after accessing the back-end God Mode platform that Twitter employees use. He then pocketed the money from the sales before booting the new owners from the stolen accounts that they had bought using those control panel privileges, essentially wrangling the usernames back from his supposed customer after they paid him. A few of his acquaintances from that and previous hacks spoke anonymously to reporters about his activities, which helped clarify what had happened in the days leading up to Clark's arrest. The bigger context of this particular scheme which could have been much, much worse had it been used for geopolitical purposes or even to crash the stock market, which wouldn't have been beyond the realm of possibility based on the powers that had been granted to these hackers, is that online security is difficult and imperfect. And no matter how good you are at one element of security, there are almost certainly vulnerabilities that you're not aware of, which can be utilized by even very mediocre level hackers, scammers, and other folks with malicious intent. 
Many of these attacks, these days, make use of structures outside the systems they're trying to attack, gaining access to a private Slack channel to get credentials to access a private toolkit, for instance, is asymmetric, as is SIM swapping to get someone's phone number, which, in today's world, can then gain you access to login credentials to just about every other account that person has. Some analysts are calling this particular attack a generous, low-key excuse to do better, because very little damage was done compared to what could have been done, and those involved were, while clever, also quite inept in much of what they were trying to do. That is an absolute gift for Twitter and everyone else involved on the receiving end of these hacks, because it could have been so much worse, and this provides them with the opportunity to fill in some of those security holes so that future attacks taking similar paths will be less likely to succeed. Twitter will likely face government fines, perhaps in the hundreds of millions of dollars range, due to their lapse in this case. But even that may be small potatoes compared to what they could have faced had the attackers been a little more competent and aiming at different ends. This case also raises the question of how we protect our private conversations, interactions, and other data online. In a world in which so many services are interconnected in a way that makes them more useful, but also potentially more vulnerable. What responsibilities do companies like Twitter have for these sorts of hacks? How might those responsibilities shift when other platforms and companies, like the telephone company that allowed SIM swapping to occur, are also to blame? How might this shift the balance of power between the largest social networks operating today, and how might it influence the burgeoning movement to break up and more sternly regulate these networks, not just in the U.S., but around the world? It will be interesting to see what this does to the popularity of Bitcoin, too, a cryptocurrency that is purported to be good for anonymously purchasing things online and exchanging value without giving yourself away to the typical guardians of such value exchanges, but which in this case failed to protect the hackers using it for a public scam, actually helping in some ways law enforcement find and build a case against them rather than allowing them to escape with their ill-gotten crypto gains. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures, by Merlin Sheldrake. This book was absolutely fascinating. I actually listened to it over the course of a road trip recently, and I've read other books about fungi, but much of what I've read about it before tended to focus fairly heavily on the psychedelic potential of fungi, which is not nothing, but it's not everything. And this book, thankfully, got into a whole lot more of the broader context, the historical context going into deep, deep earth history, but also the context of how ubiquitous fungi is in essentially everything all over the world, in shapes that we would recognize as fungi, but also in shapes that we would not, because it is so capable at blending itself in with other types of life. Now, if anything about that sounds interesting to you, I highly recommend picking up a copy of Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. 
You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com, and you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm at Colin is my name on most of those, though it's just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.